welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera. And before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to take a couple moments to really thank all the coaches, all the players, all the parents, all the fans of water polo that have taken the time to reach out and send me an email or tweet at me or share an episode that they really like. It's meant so much to me to see um, all these people listening to these episodes, listening to these great coaches talk about their experiences. And really the goal of this podcast has always been to help water polo grow in a positive way. I feel like the more content that we can create, uh, the more of a fan base that we can generate, the more appealing the sport can be to the masses and without content, without creative ideas, I think the sport is stuck. And so this was just my small contribution to trying to live up to that. The sport of water polo has given me a tremendous amount, and I'm just constantly trying to give back. So, you know, when you leave a review, when you give me a five-star review or um, shoot me an email, it, it, it just helps with other people finding this podcast and there's no money in this podcast i'm trust me i'm not making anything this is just out of pure enjoyment and i'm lucky enough to be in a position in the world of water polo where i could reach out to uh, really influential coaches that are willing to sit down and talk with me for an hour and um, really share their story so Again, I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, This is the season one finale, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with the women's assistant coach at UCLA, Christopher Lee. All right, I'm sitting here at Orange Lutheran High School uh, with the new assistant coach, uh, UCLA women's program, Chris Lee. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming out this way and uh, talking with me. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I, I really appreciate you being here. A lot to talk about. Um, and really, I've known you for so long, but we haven't really had a chance. Like most coaches, we just don't have a chance to really sit down and talk because we're usually on a pool deck. So this has been uh, something that I've been looking forward to a, to a while. Um, I wanted to ask you just quickly that standard question of, you know, how did you get started in coaching water polo? Yeah, well... For sure. My path is a lot different than what you normally hear. Um, so that's, you know, it, it goes back. I think it started very similar to how most people, most people get into the sport. I grew up swimming. Uh, swimming was a big part of my life, you know, year round from 10 until high school. And I got into high school and then there was really just, you know, we swam from August all the way through the end of state championships. It was a winter sport. Uh Finish in like May, uh, March, sorry. Finish in March, and then we would get three months before the summer would start. And, you know, all of my high school friends, we all just started playing water polo, which is kind of the natural natural way to fill that time. So did that through high school, got into college. Uh, and I didn't play varsity water polo in college. I played club water polo in college. And the nice thing about the club scene is that it's all student-run, student-organized, uh, student-coached. Uh, so the coach of the men's team at Penn was a, a woman who played for the for the women's team, and then the women's team that spring 
needed a new coach because the previous coach was going abroad. He was a junior, normal, you know, in the off season they go abroad. So the end of the men's season, she just asked if anybody was interested in coaching. Hey, how, if any of you are interested in coaching the women's team, you know, let us know. So it was my freshman year. Didn't know that much about coaching. I'd never coached before. Still probably didn't know that much about water polo. Looking back now, I didn't know anything about water polo. Um, but, you know, they needed someone, and, and I was willing to, to do it just to show up, basically. Uh, so I started coaching. That was my freshman year in college. Uh, that was the spring of 2000. Wow. Uh, we were awful. I mean, the team was just really bad. I think we were 1-10 in 10 that year. Uh, the one game we won, the team we played against only had seven players. One of the girls, three exclusions, probably th- midway through the third quarter. Oh, jeez. So they played man down for a quarter and a half. And the game still went into overtime. Ended up winning, but that was the only time we won that year. Yeah. So, uh, But, yeah, it kind of persisted from there. Went through that, uh, was in college for five years, so coached all five years. By the time we finished it, that was a, we won the conference the first time the school had won the conference. Uh, I think we were maybe 10-1. and one. Um, We went to collegiate club championships, and it was a, yeah, it was a good experience for the kids. It was fun for me just to, to see that program grow a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that seems like, like you said um, before, I mean, that definitely seems like a different path than what, people are used to, to hearing like the, these these resumes but there has to be something you know really valuable to like you were saying it was student run and you were there must have been a lot of pride involved with coaching a team like that because obviously you're still a student you're still interacting with a lot of the players like just on a regular basis right so yeah like, what was that experience like and and if you could speak to really quickly the value of having that colli- uh, that collegiate club sort of scene going for sure um you know it seems to be very valuable well the thing about collegiate club players is that it's you have to really love the sport i think that's the one thing that i found is that it's you only get kids that are really passionate about staying involved with the sport Otherwise, they find other things to do. There's just way too many different options for involvement in college life, uh, just in general. And so I think the the kids that were there were just people that wanted to be there, yeah. to be a part of the sport. It wasn't necessarily about winning or losing. It was just about being there and having a good time, having a group of people that they were really close to. Uh, and that ended up being my closest group of friends was just people that I met through through Club Water Polo. The nice thing for me was that as a young coach and a really inexperienced coach, everybody that I was coaching was my age. And so we were friends yeah. first. Uh, and that made things a lot easier, just the interactions, the relationships, the conversations, but also the time we spent together. You build a lot of a lot of really good relationships just from being a part of it. And so I had really, really good friends on both teams, the men's team, the women's team. And I think that that made it a lot easier to go through the growing pains of just becoming a coach. Uh, Things you don't know, things that you know, having candid conversations with players rather than with assistant coaches. You know, assistant coaches, sometimes you you get lucky, sometimes you don't. But with players, you, you get exactly what they're going through all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so having the, those relationships uh, were a really big part of the kind of the unique scenario of being involved with club 
club water polo at the college level. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was absolutely invaluable for me. And, you know, on the other side of it, just from an experience standpoint, I got to see every state from Connecticut all the way to Florida up and down that entire coast. And it wouldn't have happened. I probably never would have left Philadelphia, maybe New York every once in a while, but I probably never would have left Philadelphia if it wasn't for water polo. So just it, it afforded us a lot of opportunities just for the experiences that I think college is all about. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's, that's something that was just, I couldn't, I couldn't have, I couldn't have gotten a good experience out of college without having water polo as a, as a vehicle for that. So. You know, I, I feel very similar about my situation or my, my experience at Queens College. You know, uh, going out to New York, I'd never been to New York. And so when I went out there, the first time was my first practice. I just flew out there and, and got, got in and practiced. I never would have traveled that East Coast if it wasn't. I would yeah. never have traveled through there if it wasn't for water polo. Uh, it's just the amazing opportunities. And I'm sure you obviously have a lot more broad travel, you know, travel, which we'll get into. But, um, you know, just I'm going to go get back to like how you went from that to your uh, first like collegiate uh, NC2A program. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, now being kind of you've been in college for, for so long, you've been a college coach for so long. Um, is there anything in co collegiate water polo that um, you're you're really really stoked on? Is there anything that you're not really happy with? Um, is there anything that if you had a magic wand that you would change? Um, have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean we think about it a lot. I think as coaches we have these conversations all the time because in some ways it's our livelihood. Yeah, right? uh, it's something that we're we're pretty passionate about, but we're also really invested in the health of the of the game of the sport and just in general this the state of it in college is really important to all of us you know as college coaches uh and i've been really happy with just watching the programs around the country grow i think from when i started coaching in college at the ncaa level being a college coach wasn't necessarily a really sought after position mm -hmm. it wasn't as difficult to get a job like that as it is now, where I feel like there's more people that want to do it than there are available good jobs for. Yeah. Uh, and so because of that, you're getting coaches, really, really good coaches that are traveling outside of the normal, what you would have considered normal probably 10 years ago, uh, like having someone like Teddy Minnis at Harvard, yeah. having somebody like Dusty live back at Princeton, uh, somebody like Marcelo at uh, at Michigan, getting those those kinds of coaches spreading out over the country, and you start to see the the parity of the sport has just been been great over the yeah. last couple of years. And you know, I mean, you've seen it this season with uh, with Harvard just beating Cal, and you know, and smaller programs like Pomona getting a win over over UCI, things like that have been you know, it's it's really really good for our sport. Yeah. Because people always talk about big three, big four, big five, and it just ends up being uh, a crazy stat. I think, in just in general, you watch the NCAA men's basketball tournament is one of the most exciting postseason events just in the country, yeah. professional, college, or otherwise. And a lot of that has to do with how how many different things can happen, yeah. right? And 
on the water polo side of this, there's not a lot of unexpected upsets, you know, things that you just weren't weren't ready for. And so I think that that's starting to happen a little bit more. Uh, and so that's been a good trend for just college water polo in general. It would be interesting, you know, it would be really interesting to see these collegiate club programs start, you know, in, in NCAA. For maybe USA Water Polo, and this is not a knock on USA Water Polo at all. I'm just, I'm just suggesting for them to inject some funds into these programs to allow them to like get rolling because the institutions don't want to put the money in. I mean, because a lot of times people don't want to go to a Division three school because they'd rather go to the name brand university like a USC or UCLA because of that, just that notoriety of graduating from a school like that. But I mean. University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League school, you could get kids to go to the, those institutions and play. Yeah. Um, and, and you would see just this, like, hyper growth of the sport if that were to happen. It's all, I guess it's all about funding. Yeah, I think, I think funding is part of it. I think parity also just gives athletic departments a chance to, to believe in the possibilities of a sport. Just, I think it's really hard to convince an athletic director to add a sport if they don't feel like they're ever going to have a chance to be mm. competitive. Uh, so I think that, you know, the the sport growing in a way where you could have a Division three championship uh, separate from a Division one championship, things like that, I think would would go a long way to to helping the sport grow quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but you know, reality is that there are. Oh, man, I think on the women's side or the men's side, each there's probably over a hundred collegiate club teams in the country yeah. that operate in conferences that play at a 16-team national championship every year, uh, and that's well beyond the scope of what NCAA water polo has. So, as far as collegiate water polo, just in general, there's there's a lot of schools that are involved. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I see it on online. I mean, I see you know. Um, CWPA does a really good job of, of promoting that sort of that level of water polo, and you always think to yourself, "Man, if Michigan State, you know, I mean, Ohio State, all these different schools that people from here from Southern California would love to go to, um, if they had come, you know, like NC2A water polo, it's maybe that's the future, you know, maybe that's where it's headed, and and you have a very unique perspective because you were there, and then from there you end up going to Pomona Pitzer is that is that right? Yeah. And so you're you go from what land what landed you at Pomona from? College? So I was at Penn for five years from my undergrad. Took a year off and then I went back for graduate school. Uh, I was there for three years and I coached through all three of those years. Two of which I coached the men's team and the women's team, because the collegiate club is pretty open. You can have grad students that play. Uh, so my first year, I actually was still playing on the men's team. So I played on the collegiate club team there for six years, which okay. is crazy. But it yeah. was, it's it's cool because we always had graduate students that had really good water polo experience while I was, you know, while I was playing. I got to play with some really really good players that just happened to be at Penn for school. Yeah. Right. The MBA program there is phenomenal. You hear about the Wharton School all the time. It's, you know, yep. Players like, I don't know if you remember uh, Nick Kittredge, played at Cal, uh, really good player, MPSF player of the year, uh, maybe tournament player of the player of the tournament kind of thing, but he 
got his MBA at Penn, so he played for two years on the club team there. Oh, wow. And so for us, just to be able to have people like Nick, and then there's uh, just various alums from different schools, that, uh, really good water polo players that just happen to end up at Penn. Yeah. Um, that combined with the fact that there are always, always kids from private schools and, and really good public schools in California that are trying to get to a place like Penn just because of the, the academics. Like, you know, there's a, Harvard Westlake sends a ton of kids to, to Penn every year. It's just something that has always been, been yeah. part of it. So, I, you know, that's the first time I ever heard of Harvard Westlake was when I was at Penn, and there were kids on the team that played there, played for Rich Corso. And, okay. uh, and you know, I was just one of those things where the, the type of kids, the type of students you get interested in that school and that program is just, uh, it's, it's, a cool, it's a cool combination of all of those things. Uh, so I think that that's that's probably part of the reason why why a school like that has been able to sustain some water polo. The problem is has always been there's never consistent coaching or leadership. Yeah. Just the kids graduate or they lose interest or whatever's going on, uh, and they go in and out, and so that ends up being being tough. But if you think about, you know, like you mentioned Michigan State when I was at. Penn, Michigan State on the men's team and the women's team were always finishing first or second at collegiate club championships yeah. almost every year. And yeah, you look we had at these a guy teams. from Queens, actually, Peter Ryan, two-meter guy, who ended up leaving Queens after his sophomore, junior year and went to Michigan State. Yeah. He was a baller. He was a really, really good player. Yeah. And he's, just, he's, he's at Michigan State at a, at a club sort of water polo program, so he'd never... This guy was 6'6", you know, big two-meter guy, really, really fast swimmer, and just sort of a diamond in the rough that you're never you would never see outside oh, of that you for know? sure and i'm sure they were scattered all over the place i'm sure there was that that one baller like you were talking about you know guy from cal you're just like where did this guy come from yeah why is he not playing at xyz school you know yeah yeah and so that was that was a fun part as you see grad students from all over played division one somewhere and then they ended up going to grad school somewhere and they're still playing and that's something that's just been it was cool. It was a cool experience for all of us just to be able to see it and, and experience and yeah. have have the chance to play with players like that, um, hear their stories and kind of get a feel for what college water polo was for them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you show up at collegiate club championships and I was always fascinated by the fact that the Michigan State roster was almost completely filled with kids from Michigan. You know, the Rockford program out there has been all just killing it for years. Yeah. And so you get kids from Rockford all going to Michigan State, and that team ends up being really good. And you wonder, well, what happens if some of those kids end up going to California to play? Or better yet, what if Michigan State just started a water polo team? You know, an NCAA water polo team where you've got kids from inside the state that are already willing to be there, play, and, and... you know, just the, the possibilities are, are pretty cool. And they have amazing swim backgrounds, too. I mean, Texas has amazing swimming. Michigan has amazing swimming. I mean, these are these are states that yeah. are known for aquatics in some respect, um, in a lot of respects, actually. Yeah. So, um, but going back to sort of like moving out west, you know, you end up at Pomona Pitzer. And how long were you at Pomona for? So I left grad school. Yeah, this kind of roundabout way of getting to it. I left grad school in 2008, moved to New York to work, got a real job in 2008, 2009, not a really good time in, in the economy. Mm. Um, my, since 
since graduating high school, my parents had moved out to California. My dad was teaching as a professor at Claremont McKenna. Oh, okay. So I left New York, moved back in with my parents for a little bit, and just still had that water polo bug. So I reached out, wrote an email, made up a really nice resume. I didn't have a whole lot of stuff, so I figured I just might as well make it look really nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sent that to uh, Greg Lonzo at Claremont and Alex Rodriguez at Pomona. Um, it was it was late in the summer, but I knew I was going to be there. And I just said, hey, look, I would love to be involved. I don't know what kind of capacity you guys have available, but would love to do this. Um, and then, of course, I didn't hear back from either of them. Yeah. Uh, so a week later, a week later, I just followed up. I was like, hey, still interested. Um, and uh, and Alex wrote back. He was like, hey, you know, I've got a full staff right now, but, you know, we can we can meet. Uh, I've got a club. I've got other things. If you really want to be involved with water polo, let's talk. Uh, so I sat down with him, and I I don't know if I talked him into it or if he was just looking for a way to find find a find another assistant coach. But you know, I I told him, look, don't pay me right now if you don't have the money to pay me, because you know we just the the stipend was pretty small for assistant coaches. He yeah. already had two on the men's side, uh, and so it was just hey, let's if you're really interested in being involved in the sport and you want to coach, we would love to have you. Just, it's hard to find people that are passionate about what's going on, yeah. willing to put in the time, and they're available, you know. So that's how I ended up at Pomona. I was there from 2009, the fall of 2009, through the spring, the end of the women's season in 2012. Wow. So, yeah, almost so three years. Yeah. Almost paralleled my Concordia experience, which yep. is where we really started uh, talking and meeting. And Alex... I mean, he doesn't get enough credit for what he's done at Pomona from that time that he took over, which was around 2007, I, I believe. Um, and really, I, I remember having conversations with him, and I, I'd love to have him on the on the podcast just about some of the struggles of building that program and you know all that kind of stuff. Just just the regular struggles of dealing with Division Three and you know restrictions and everything else. Yeah. Um, so you you know you you go to Pomona. You guys are really successful at Pomona Pitzer. And so are you doing, are you coaching both men and women? At the yeah. Time? Okay. Yeah, both men and women. And um, both teams are having a ton of success, winning conference almost every year um, yeah. that, that you're there, right? The three seasons with the men's team, we won conference one time, a uh, couple couple tough losses in uh, to good Whittier teams. Yeah, Whittier was Justin, Yeah, up. Justin put together really, really good teams, a lot of talent. Um, and then uh, on the women's side, we won two out of three. Yeah, it was uh, the women's team was just firing at that point. They'd, I think the senior group, my my first year there, that senior group had won three out of they won three out of four, and the one that they lost, they lost in the finals by one. So oh, that okay. that group was really good. We had one down here, and then we got a really good group of freshmen in my last year there, and the, yeah, they played really well. So and you know. You, you seem to have, like, this sort of talent of being able to talk to players, being able to talk to other coaches. You're very personable. Is that one of the things that you felt brought value to the team at, at that particular time? Like, hey, like, you know, maybe I'm still learning. Maybe I'm, I didn't come from this big old school, you know, Pepperdine or, or whatever. But you know, here's what I can bring to the table. Is is that how you sort of pitched it, or is that just evolved like that? Is that just how it became, you know, became? 
Oh man, I mean, I think in terms of selling Alex on whether or not I I could be useful to them, it was just I just told them that I was interested and I would work for free. That was I think that I think that was enough. Sold. Yeah, yeah. And I, it was a couple of years later, but he he jokes with me all the time that the only reason he wrote me back is because he thought my resume looked really nice. He's like, I didn't really look at it, but it was like really pretty. I said, all right, well, that, I mean, if that's what got me in the Mental door, note, yeah, that's all good. So, so yeah, it, it, the time that I spent working on it was, was good. So, but that, you know, for me, the crazy thing is that at that point I had coached for eight years already, mm-hmm. but that was the first time I'd ever been an assistant coach. Uh, and so there was a lot, it was a really good opportunity for me because he had a couple other assistant coaches at the time. So Chris Gillen, who's the head coach of the women's team at Redlands now, yeah. uh, Jim Armstrong, who was the coach of the Braille Linda team for a really, really long time, uh, with East and then, um, bounced around a little bit is just a lot of experience and good, good rapport with Alex already. And yeah. so for me, it was, I was lucky because I didn't have a whole lot of responsibility, gave me a lot of chances to just sit and watch and learn. Uh, and then there was a lot of mentoring that happened. And really, that was the probably the biggest help to me was, okay, well, I need you to do this. I can handle this part of it. Chris is doing this. Jim's doing this. I need you to be able to have this conversation with this kid. They come out of the water. I need you to talk to this person or whatever it was. And so <clears throat> just in terms of finding a role and finding balance within a staff, uh, that was something that that I learned kind of on the fly as I was going, but you know, it was, you know, for me, it's always been about those relationships. And I was still young enough at that point that the kids in college were, were close enough to my age that I felt like we still had that relationship. The senior in college, my first year at Pomona was, you know, it was close enough. So I I think that that was still pretty natural for me to have that more peer to peer relationship rather than like a coach to player relationship. So uh, it was a kind of a natural fit. And, and it was a, important enough that I think it's just maintained as part of part of what I what I think is is important in, in coaching. Maybe a big part of my coaching philosophy. I, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, but yeah, I I try as best as possible to be able to connect with with the kids and uh, in whatever capacity yeah. it is, yeah. whether it's just life or water polo or whatever it is, and so uh, and I think that as an assistant coach, those those roles are really important. Yeah. Um, Obviously, they change a little bit as a head coach, or you know, whatever whatever well, the case is. So, and, and I mean, obviously, your resume proves that you're really good at what you do. I mean, so you went from Pomona, and then you get the assistant coaching job for the women's team at Cal, and at this time, you're already kind of jumping in with the national team. Um, and I know you started at the the lower level with the national team because Alex was there. I think we mentioned we talked about that like uh, you know before we started recording. Um, so you're kind of jumped in with the cadet team, and then you go to Cal, and then you're on the seat. You know you're working with the senior national team, and I don't want to like j- skip too too much, but I mean that's quite a difference between the Pomona Pitzer you know kids that are at Pomona Pitzer playing and the kids who are at Cal playing, and then difference between Cal and then the women's senior national team I mean not to make too broad of a question but I mean what was that experience like you know just to just to go to Cal first and then to also start working with you know some of the best players in the world yeah uh you know it's funny because when I first started coaching with Alex I I remember looking through like bios for coaches on different web pages and 
everybody was involved with the national team at some point. Either they played on the national team, played with the junior team, was coaching the junior team, or whatever else it is. And in my mind, I was just thinking, look, there's there's no way I'll ever have that kind of resume to be able to do this. So I'm just going to ride this out as long as I can. Yeah. It was never meant to be a permanent thing or, you know, persistent to a career. Uh, so because of that, I feel like there was never any pressure for me to to make it. So I just did as much as I could whenever I had the possibility to do it. So I just said yes to everything. Uh, and I would put myself out there, too. I'm the coaching with Alex with ODP. First thing, he didn't need me, but I just told him, I was like, look, if you need somebody at the tryout, you're going to have a lot of kids there. Maybe I can just help check people in. That turned into two weeks later, Greg Lonzo gets the head coaching or the assistant coaching job with the junior national team. So assistant coaching position opens up with that ODP team. And that was a good, really good ODP team. It was a coastal zone 2010. So you got like Sammy Hill, Ashley Grossman. Uh, Colleen O'Donnell, just the list goes on. It was really good. So getting a chance to coach players that were at that level that were just really still pretty hungry for for knowledge and learning about the sport, doing that, uh, staying involved with ODP, and then you know having a, a good relationship with Kim Everest uh, to where she felt comfortable asking me to help her out with the cadet national team. Uh, and then that kind of parlaying into... Kyle Kopp was coaching the youth team at the time, and he was hosting these academy trainings, which were you know twice a week at night, Santa Ana uh, YMCA. Uh, and I was like, hey, if you need an extra coach, I would love to just be a fly on the wall, you know, for for no other reason than just to help myself out, yeah. um, but just to see see coaches coaching. So it was Kyle and and Heather Moody, and uh, and so that turned into. Uh, Moody was with the senior national team at the time. We had conversations about doing like video editing and stuff that I was doing at Pomona at the time. Uh, and that turned into uh, an email that I got from Adam Krikorian, which I almost deleted because I thought it was just like solicitation from USA Water Polo. <laughs> I was just like, there's no reason I should be receiving this other yeah. than, oh, this announcement about something the senior team just did. So I almost deleted that one. Uh, but, you know, he was asking, hey, we, we're looking for uh, for some help. We were wondering if you wanted to help out with video for World Championships in 2011. And I was like, of course, I was going to say yes, but I was like, oh, let me check my schedule. I got to, <laughs> you know, I got to ask Alex if it's all right. Just, yeah. you know, but, you know, and, and just having a lot of support. So through all of that, I, I was still never thought about this as a career. I actually got into graduate school at Cal uh, for architecture, uh, a second master's degree in architecture, which sounds crazy now to think about it. But I saw Rich Corso on a pool deck at, I think it was a UCI tournament uh, during the women's season in 2012. And I just approached him and I said, hey, look, I applied to Cal for a graduate program. Um, you know, I... You and I don't know each other that well, but, you know, I've heard a lot about you. I played with a lot of kids from Harvard when I was in college. And, you know, your, you know, reputation preceded, preceded him quite a bit. Yeah. He's a larger than life in a lot of ways. And so uh, I just told him, I was like, look, I, I'm going to be at Cal if uh, if you ever need a hand with, you know, extra, extra body, let me know. And he said, oh, if you're going to be there. Well, first of all, he, he told me, I can't help you get in. <laughs> he, I think he thought that I was I was asking yeah. for for help, and I for just told him, "Look, I, I I have all the help that I need right now. You know, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna get into this program, but I would love to." And he said, "Yeah, if you're gonna be there, we would love to have you. We have a 
open a volunteer assistant coaching position. Uh, if you're willing to, to do that, when you get to Cal, just call me and let me know. And I kind of laughed. I looked at him and I was like, Rich, you, you don't even know me. Yeah. And you're offering me a job. And he said, look, I've seen you around the pool deck a ton. Uh, and you, you obviously care a lot about the sport. You're involved with USA Water Polo, doing this and that. So, yeah, we would love to have you. And that kind of, yeah, just kept kept growing. It's like the story about the, the guy who started with a paperclip and kept trading it up into, until he had a car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, kind of the way that it went for me. You know, I went from, from Pomona to being involved in the national team, getting into Cal for graduate school, starting at, as a volunteer assistant there. Uh, and then at that point, I still was was never considering it as a as a career path. Yeah. So I was just writing it out as long as I could and and having a good time, uh, enjoying enjoying that. But yeah, the levels were 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 different, but not that different. I remember just 2012, fall of 2012 was my first first. Uh, that's when I started with the women at Cal, and so that's right off the right off the Olympics and and you know that epic uh pan am finals yeah. between the u.s uh, and yeah. canada yeah and i just remember the rivalry was was really hot and uh and you know one of the one of the craziest games i've ever seen uh and emily chicos he scored five goals in regulation out of eight for for canada and just single-handedly uh almost won that game yeah. so uh and when i showed up she was a senior at cal and so for me it was well, these this team is is right there. You yeah. know, it's it's as good, if not you know, just comparable to any national team level level coaching that you can have. So, so yeah, it was a yeah one thing after the other. But what are the demands of a coach at a program like Cal? What what would be like a typical day for you? First, let's start in the like in the off season. You know, let's say in the fall. What what would be like a typical day for you? Yeah, a lot of it, you know, revolves around the differences between being a volunteer assistant coach, being a full time assistant coach. Uh, there are restrictions on what you can and can't do in terms of, like, I wasn't allowed really to be involved with recruiting at all. Mm. So that gave me a lot of freedom. For me, it was I was busy most of the time just because I was still in school, uh, doing full time uh, school, full time research assistant, which is how I paid for grad school. Uh, and then just in all of the free time that I had, I was at the pool coaching. And so, you know, the fall is pretty relaxed. We're just doing a lot of swimming, uh, conditioning. There's just so many restrictions on what you can do. Yeah. Uh, and then just being as involved as possible. But, uh, yeah, I think the, the roles, the demands on it, I didn't really truly understand until I became a full-time assistant coach where – Coaching ends up being a big part of what you do, but it's really maybe only half of the responsibilities that you that you cover. Uh, the rest of it's about making sure that the operational side of things, the paperwork, recruiting is a huge part of it. I mean, recruiting might be 50% of it yeah. just there. Yeah. Uh, organizing official visits, uh, doing phone calls, things like that. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into it behind the scenes just as a, to keep the program sustaining. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I would imagine because when I was at Concordia, I mean, I got emails every single day. I mean, about for players, and and so I could imagine that the Cal email inbox for recruits is just filled to the brim daily, um, and sorting through all of that. And so, 
what is it that what is it that you're looking for as a coach um what's what skills or what what is it that you're looking for in players that that to play at a level like that yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's funny because we do get quite a few emails. I think that there are actually a lot of kids out there that don't contact us because they don't know if they're good enough to play at a place like Cal or UCLA. Uh, so they, uh, so I think that we we actually don't get quite as many emails as as a lot of programs do. Um, but I I always appreciate kids to take the time that to to reach out yeah. uh, and there's something about them that that is is worth looking into a little bit more and so for us you know for me there's there's a couple of things I think it depends on what what you think your program is really good at uh, and whether or not that kid is going to be a good fit within that program regardless of what they've done before or who they played for uh, the things that they've accomplished there's always going to be a kid that can come in there and really be good in that in that setting. It's just a, you give them the right environment, you can you can make that work. But there's always there's always the the kind of baseline things that you know. I think uh, maybe this is maybe this is his background in swimming. But Dan Clat always talks about just being able to swim. Yeah. And how important that is to the sport, right? And how important it is to to what we do because it's the basis of really of a lot of the things that we get into. And it's not just swimming, but like whether you're an efficient swimmer, because an efficient swimmer really has a good feel for the water. Uh, that's somebody who ends up being someone that can move really well laterally in the water. And I think those are the things that really separate good players from great players. Um, just their ability to move in the water, get the that lateral movement is 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 pretty elusive. I think it's hard to find, and yeah. you know, and just leg strength. Uh, the senior team spends a lot of time on vertical horizontal horizontal vertical movements that are you know just hard to do and yeah. they make it look easy but they practice it quite a bit so kids that are that are naturally really good at that you they stand out a lot you know you get a bunch of kids that are and this is maybe this is going back to just the the old school ODP stuff where you've got 75 kids in a pool doing laps of upslide yeah. and you can tell the ones that really get it because of how, how they're moving in the water. And it doesn't always translate, but the possibilities are there, right? The potential that you see for kids like that, those are things that not everyone can do. It's not something that everyone, I think you can learn and you can improve, but there's some kids that just get it better than others. Yeah. Just as a naturally, they just feel it better. So things like that, are, I think are really important. And then I think it depends a little bit on whether you're talking about the men's side or the women's side. The men's side, it's not unique to find a guy that throws a ball hard. Yeah. Right, most guys throw the ball really hard. Yeah. Uh, but on the women's side, it's actually a pretty unique skill to find. You know, you, somebody like uh, like Ika, right? Ika Dabe, just the way she threw the ball was uh, unique, uh, and it it separated her from from everyone else yeah. that she played with. At the same time, it's just not that many people that throw the ball that hard. Yeah. You know, Courtney Mathewson, same thing. You know, our, Courtney likes a joke that she doesn't really she does she never survived on being able to get up out of the water and climb that ladder but she threw the ball hard probably harder than anyone i've i've ever seen play a game yeah. so so yeah. when you um when you watch some of these players would you agree that the kids who are getting it quickly and so you you're watching them at an earlier age you know because you're recruiting you've been recruiting for so long um 
you know, so you're you're seeing that some of these in sophomore juniors in high school. Do you feel like that natural looking ability translates into them being like, okay, that person is athletic because they can do it so naturally? So you're you're sort of assuming a level of athleticism. Like I, I mean, I I had the pleasure of pleasure and displeasure of watching and coaching against Aria Fisher, you know, Maddie Musselman, you yeah, know, Mackenzie Fisher. You could tell that they were next level athletes just by the way they moved. Yeah, is that sort of is that you feel like that's accurate? Yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. I think with, uh, yeah, I think that if you see enough kids play, you'll be able to tell which ones are just at a different level than everyone else from that standpoint. And I think that athleticism in the water is different than athleticism just in general. Yeah, uh, and and so I think that that's something that's pretty unique. You see. There are kids. I mean, right? We joke about it all the time. We call we call water polo players land idiots. A lot. I, if you've ever, I don't know if your men's team plays basketball, oh, but yeah. <laughs> you know, don't get me started. Don't get me started. But even the most athletic kids, sometimes they'll pick it up a little bit faster. But there's just a difference in the way that athleticism can be defined in the water than it yeah. can be in other ways. And and I think that it's a good vehicle for being able to improve. But again, I think it's just a potential thing. It's not necessarily translating to whether or not that kid's going to be really successful in college or yeah. or national team or or beyond that. So yeah. I mean, Ash Moulton, who's playing at UCLA right now, is a baller basketball player. Yeah, you know, he is an, just a pure athlete. You know, um, I would imagine that Maddie Musselman, if she had played other sports, she could she'd probably be good at anything she did. I mean, just I could just tell she's an athlete. I mean, yeah, and I could be wrong. You've been around her more, but. I, I, from what I've seen, I could just tell she's an athlete. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you've coached, you're, you're coaching at such a high level now. You're seeing all these great players all the time. Um, but there has to be the level above the good player that makes them the great player. Do you see any similarities between the great ones internationally? You've seen them all over. Is there, is there something that you see? That, that really translates into like, wow, that, that person acts exactly like this person and that's why they're good. Yeah, it's hard. I think at the international level, a lot of times you're seeing a player as they're arriving to being really good or they're already really good. So it's hard to tell what made them that mm-hmm. good. Uh, but watching kids at the cadet level uh, and then seeing them grow through the youth team, the junior team into college, and then some of them you know onto the national team, it's, uh, you know, like the first cadet team that I ever coached, kids on that team were like Devin Grab, uh, Mackenzie Fisher, Carly Capana, Jordan Rainey. So you get to see a lot of these kids, a kid like Haley Wan, uh, Casey Avalos. You get to see them grow through this. And, okay, if you see it enough times, then you can start to trace back, okay, what are the things that we identified then? that ended up being valuable or things that helped them through being able to be successful at the, at the next level. And, and the, a lot, certainly a lot of those things are about like their ability to move in the water, their ability to do those things. A lot of it has to do with just how smart they are, how well they understand the game. So I think the thing that really separates a lot of these kids is just really a lot of it's about volume of playing, you know, how well do they understand it? Well, they're going to understand it more if they played a thousand games rather than 200, yeah. you know? Uh, and that's the comparison that we, we see all the time is, is finding kids from, 
you know, my 14 and under club team when I was still at Pomona coaching with Foothill, I mean, those kids were playing probably 150, 200 games a year. Yeah. You know, and then you get kids through ODP that we're meeting from, you know, like Hawaii, for instance, they're playing 15 games a year. Yeah. And so what's the potential, but also like at what point are they behind in understanding the game at the level that they should understand it? So I think really there's there's that side of it. You see kids like uh, a kid like, you know, Dora Antal at Cal. You know, I got to see her grow a little bit through it. But by the time she was at Cal, she was already an Olympian. Yeah. But you start to see the things about her, the way she trains, the way that she sees the game and the way that that some of these athletes approach water polo. And I think really the one thing is you don't actually have to be a superior athlete to be successful in water polo. I just think you have to be be willing to do, willing to put yourself out there to learn all the things that will allow you to be successful. So, you know, whether that's about getting smarter about the game, understanding the defense better, and a lot of it is just about like having the courage to make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the one thing that you see the most often about about successful athletes is their ability to try new things. And if a kid's willing to try something new, then they have enough confidence in themselves to to know that they're going to make mistakes and not have that be a deterrent to yeah. them. And so, yeah, at a certain level, you know, it's the, this is, I, Matt Flesher and I used to talk, talk about this all the time. There's like a, a certain level, the, like the roller coaster, right? You got to be at least this tall to ride the ride. Like there's got to be at least a little bit of talent and there's got to be a, li- a little bit of athleticism, but there are ways to, to kind of separate yourself and make yeah. yourself better because of that. And that's probably one of the biggest things is just grit and, and confidence. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that, that quote of, you know, you have to have courage to make mistakes. That is literally the exact quote that I use. Um, and I learned it from an artist, actually. I learned it from uh, an artist that I made a documentary on. And he told me that. And, you know, you're putting yourself out there as an artist. You don't, people could say they hate this. But it's the exact same thing as an athlete. And you can tell when athletes are scared to fail. Not because they're scared of the coach or because they're scared that their parents are going to yell at them. But they just personally don't have that extra bump to make a mistake. And yeah. we do too as coaches. I mean, we we have that fear too. But it's a unique skill set. To It's a unique trait to have that. Um, and obviously, like you said, you still have to have certain basics. I mean, you can't. You know, there's certain things you have to have as well, but not everybody has to be six foot two to right. to be successful. I mean, that that's not that, that's not true. So, um, so now you are at UCLA, um, and we are recording this in September. So it's been a couple months. You've had time to sort of settle down, settle into to the job. I'm assuming. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you've made your phone calls and, you know, trying to recruit athletes and everything. Um, what's that change going to be like for you? Um, just, you know, now being here down here at UCLA and uh, Adam Bright being the new women's coach. Um, you know, this will be your second year, I believe. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's been a, a kind of a crazy transition. It was it was something that happened really quick. Uh, so for me, I, I think. I'm still processing some of the the things that that I'm you know I'm going through just personally and 
understanding the dynamics of, of moving from a position to position. You know, yeah. uh, this is now the second time that I've, I've left Cal for, uh, for a job. And the first time I think it made a lot of sense to people. I left as a volunteer assistant coach, become a head coach. Uh, so that transition, I think, makes it a lot of sense. And then the, you know, the most recent one, I think it, it confused some people. And, and, you know, I don't, I think that it's one of those things that <clears throat> that makes it harder to leave when you're not sure if the, if the people around you understand whether or not that was the right move for you. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I think that that's been, that's been a tough one for sure. But uh, I think, uh in the first month and a half that I've been at UCLA, all the things that I was hoping to be able to do and kind of the things that I was hoping to be able to just step into professionally uh, have certainly been as good as what I was hoping, yes. uh, if not if not better. So There has to be some, <clears throat> um, how do I say this? You know, there has to be some level of letting go and let your assistant do a little bit more work when the head coach is in the middle of another season. I would imagine he's depending so much more on his assistants uh, for the women and then vice versa for the men when he's in women's season. Does that give you, does does that feel like it gives you more confidence to do some things that maybe you couldn't do in your other jobs? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, for, and, and not knowing that that was maybe going to be the case, maybe it's just a circumstance. No, I mean, it was job. it was certainly part of the part of the uh, part of the draw for me is is knowing that my responsibilities were going to have to be a little bit greater because during the men's season, you know, I, Adam should be putting most of his time into into coaching coaching the men's team. Yeah, uh, what they're trying to accomplish there is is something that requires a lot of attention and work and. And so being able to step into that role and be able to take on a little bit more of that responsibility in the offseason uh, was, you know, it's something that that I think every every coach that's still trying to grow is uh, is is looking for all the time is, OK, what more responsibility can I take on? What other things can I experience? What other things can I use to help myself grow as a as a coach? Uh, professionally, so yeah, it was a good professional opportunity for me. It's something that, you know, I had uh, conversations uh, with with Dusty after I took the job, and you know, Dusty's been been great, uh, and obviously he he worked with Adam for a while, and so you know, a couple of seasons with the men, uh, seasons with the this last season with the women, uh, and so uh, a lot of a lot of the conversation we had was just about okay, well, these are some of the things that you're going to have to do as the assistant coach there. And if you're okay with that, and those are things that you want to do, then it's going to be a really good experience for you. And so, yeah, it's been it's been good. It's definitely something that I was I was looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, and you know, for me, the nice thing is that I can step into it without a whole lot of apprehension or or nervousness at all because I know a lot of the kids already. You know, I coached a lot of them at younger national team levels or whatever it was. Uh, I know a lot of them through recruiting, but also, you know, having, having people around you like Cody Hill, uh, makes a huge difference like that. That's like a, a really, really good, good situation just to walk into. You know, I, like I've known Cody for a really long time. Cody was actually on one of the, one, I think the second ODP team that I ever coached. And so like for for me, I've I've known her since she was 
freshman, sophomore in high school. Yeah. And so now she's a couple of years removed from college and, and just she's an incredible player, really understands the game well, knows the dynamic of the team, has worked with the Adam for a season. So for me, it's, you know, transition is a little bit easier because I just have really good people around yeah. me. Um, but yeah, definitely. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so I have a couple more questions. Um, if now we have, we always want to connect with every player. Obviously we're not able to connect with every single player, but you could probably think back at some really close relationships that you've had with players over the years. Um, and, and I'm, this is specific to the national team. Um, if there were anything that you think those players would say about you, what what do you think they would say about you in terms of just your relationship with them? And I, that, I know that's a really difficult question because it's like talking about yourself, but um, I know how much they value you. And so I just want to ask you what you think, you, you know, you brought to that. No, I appreciate that. I, I it's I mean, it's really hard for me to say. I think that uh, as coaches, we always have a, a goal for what we want our kids to be able to say by the time we're done with this. Yeah. Um, I know, this might be a kind of a roundabout way of, of answering the question, but so my dad's a college professor and I think, you know, I went to school, I got my degree in computer science, I got my master's degree in architecture. So through every step of that, I always thought that I would be a college professor. Uh, I thought I would be a, get my PhD in computer science, be a college professor, get my master's degree in architecture, be a college professor and build, you know, beautiful buildings on the side. Uh, and so I think when I decided to finally go into coaching full-time as a, as a profession, it was an extension of those same kind of values that I had. It wasn't about computer science or architecture. It was about building relationships and just being involved with, with that process of, of getting to spend time with, with ambitious, young, passionate, you know, adults that are, the future of whatever profession they're going to be a part of. Uh, and so I think that for that part of it, I still approach coaching, especially at the college level, the same way I think about it as, okay, I get to be, a, a professor. We talk maybe more about life than we do about any one particular subject. Yeah. And our vehicle is water polo, right? So we, why do we care so much about the way that somebody trains, the way that they treat their bodies, the way that they, you know, the way that they balance their lives? We talk about, okay, yeah, I get the question all the time, you know, especially at really good academic institutions, people are worried about, can I balance being a Division One athlete with the academic demands of being a student? Yeah, you can. It's hard. But it's not any harder than anything else you've ever had to do or will ever be expected to do. Like yeah. right now we talk about water polo. You're balancing water polo in school, maybe with your social life. And yeah, at some point you have to sacrifice here and there. But at some point, instead of water polo in school, we might be talking about like your job and your family. Yeah. And can you really put yourself in a position where you're choosing one over the other or is it better just to have the skill set and the understanding and the experience to be able to handle that? So I think that in terms of like what what our job is as coaches, that's that's you know a lot of the goal is to be able to say, hey, look, I learned things from you that are helpful for me in my life, 
now, even though I'm not playing water polo anymore. And so I think that, you know, going back to, to your original question, I'm not sure what, what kids, what the kids that I've had the experience of, of uh, spending time with would say, but for me, a lot of this is just about knowing whether or not they are, they feel like they're getting the experiences that they need whether it's in the water or whether it's in some strange country and we're getting to see the sights. Uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll be the one on, you know, our random trips through like Amsterdam or Rotterdam or whatever is going on. And I'll be pointing out buildings and talking about architects and things like that. And if that means that they're getting a little bit more culture out of the trip that normally is just about pool, hotel, <laughs> food, yeah. pool, then then I then hopefully you know I'm I'm adding a little bit there. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me on the senior team level, it's it's easy because my job is a little bit peripheral. You know, I, I talk about it with the team sometimes as like being like one foot in and one foot out of the circle because I spend a lot of time away from the team. I'm at the pool doing video when they're they're doing stuff like preparing for games and and having meetings and stuff like that. So I get to see it from the inside and from the outside. Yeah. And so for me, you know, what they need from me is not really there's not that many things that I feel like they actually need from me on a daily basis and so a lot of what I get to do is just about interacting the relationships that I'm able to have just socially with so them you could really be like a shoulder for them or like uh, just a conversation when they need a conversation but I mean that I, I think a lot of people don't understand how valuable that probably is when you're dealing with athletes that have 20 different things going on in their mind and they have to perform at a super high level, and they're missing their family at home, and they're, right? I mean, it's all these different things, all these different dynamics. That, uh, For sure. Must be amazing. So, um, a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, so, what or who, who have been your biggest mentors in terms of coaching? That, that's a tough one for sure. I, I thought about this question a little bit. Um, and I know that with, I guess a lot of this is just depends on like how, how you define mentor and how you kind of talk about what, what has been the biggest impact to you. Um, and I can certainly single out uh, particular people. Uh, and a lot of it's just a bit about people that have had, that have given me a chance, you know. Uh, and taking taking a chance on on someone that they weren't sure about, you know, I think that that was that was my scenario with uh, with Alex at Pomona, and Alex has been for sure one of my biggest biggest supporters, biggest fans. Uh, we've been really good friends. It was something I was never expecting, you know, from from the whole thing. Um, but a lot of that was his role. He felt like was about teaching us how to become coaches. Uh, and how to interact with the student athletes and and with uh, with the rest of the coaching staff and and it's still somebody you know that all the way through especially when I was at at Oxy uh, he and I talked a lot because I was like hey man how do you how do you get through this part of it yeah uh, and I think that that was a, a huge help um, but I, I like to think that from every coach I've ever seen coach I try to steal stuff from what they're doing things that I like and things that I really appreciate about it. Like uh, I still remember going to the Villa Park tournament and watching your team swim before games. I was like, okay, well, why is he doing that? 
what are they getting out of it? And is that something that I think can be really valuable for us? And I think a lot of that was about mentality. A lot of it was about just the preparation that happens to like an, a young team, the beginning of a really, really, you know, tough road. So uh, things like that, I, I've learned a ton from, from different people that have been a part of my journey. And that goes back to, you know, coaches that I had at, at Penn, uh, people that I, that were grad students when I was coaching that were five, six, seven years older than I was that had way more coaching experience than I had and the things that they told me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say Alex has been one of my biggest, you know, biggest influences as a coach. Um, being able to coach with, uh, with Matt Flesher and, and with Rich, uh, two very different coaches uh, that I got to experience in one, in one bubble at the same time. Uh, and I learned a ton from both of them about every aspect of the sport. And that involves a lot of it involves things that happen outside of the pool, you know, just relationships within an athletic department, uh, how you navigate certain, certain things within uh, just administration and things like that. So, uh, and then obviously, you know, I think uh, I really appreciate the approach that Adam Krikorian has uh, the way that he brings young coaches into, into the fold with, with, you know, every level of, of national team and how welcoming he is to having coaches show up to senior team practices and just sit and watch, ask questions, or even be involved. You know, every once in a while, it'll just be, Hey, can you help out with this? You blow a whistle or will you, you know, be, you know, be a part of this, this drill or, and I think that that, those things have been really, really valuable in my development, not only as a coach, but also in defining what my responsibilities are to the people that will come after me. Gotcha. Uh, so I got to be a part of the development national team uh, as a head coach. And I felt like my biggest role there was empowering the coaches that I had on my staff to be a part of the coaching process and not just being flies on the wall. And, and they were phenomenal. I mean, the coaches I had there were, I, I felt like I didn't have to do a whole lot. Yeah. You know, Alicia Began, who's done a ton, really good water polo player, uh, went on to be, uh, is, is doing some pretty incredible things with that Coronado team down yeah. there. Um, and then Casey Greenwald, who's just, you know, if if nothing else, you know, one of the most positive coaches I've ever been around. Uh, Nikki Davidson, you know, and all of them just really, really know their stuff, have the confidence to be able to go in and, and have an opinion about something and be able to fight for that opinion, but also help mentor the, the kids through that whole process. So, yeah, I, it's hard to it's hard to answer that as as a as singling out certain coaches. But I feel like every coach I've ever coached against watch coach, whether I was recruiting or, yeah. or scouting, um, I try to steal something from everyone. So I've learned from, from a ton of different people, yeah. but I, the thing that I've probably appreciated the most are the coaches that also make their, their role as a men being a mentor, a huge part of what they define themselves as, as coaches to be. So, yeah. uh, that has been huge for my growth and probably something that I think every coach can do a better job with. And not a better job because they don't do it, but just because there's always a need for it. Yeah, be know? more intentional with that mentorship. Yeah, I think is and as you as I get older, I realize how important that part of my job is. It's always been a big part, but 
when you're intentional about mentorship, I think it you take a different approach. You know, the wins and the losses really fall into perspective big time when, yeah. you, when you think about that. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's natural for us, too, because as coaches, that's just coaching in some ways, right? We're not coaching players. We're coaching coaches. Yeah. And, you know, the the more good coaches there are out there, the better off our sport is going to be. So, for sure. you know, I, I get a call probably – once a week, once every other week from uh, my old assistant at Oxy, Jack Stavenfeld, who's now the head coach at Oxy. Hey, I just ran into this situation. What do you think? Uh, and so knowing that he has the confidence to be able to call me and ask that question, uh, it's, it's, it's good. I feel like I'm, I'm able to give back a little bit yeah. in that way. So. Uh, and hopefully whoever his assistant coaches feel like he's doing that for them. As yeah, well. actually, I, I had an opportunity to speak with one of the assistants. And, you know, they're out on the trail. You know, they're really um, trying to get some some players over there. And so, um, you know, definitely trying to make a trying to make a name, you know, which would be interesting to see. For so, sure. For sure. Um, last question. Two part mm-hmm. question. Um, what advice would you give to yourself and what advice would you give to a young coach um, starting out? And it, let's just say young coach starting out in a, at a high school program. Um, and what advice would you give yourself as a coach, you know, if you can go back? Huh. For myself, I think uh, the one thing that I've found has been the most useful in the later part of, you know, the more recent, I guess I should say, the more recent part of my coaching career has just been about taking chances to learn new things. Uh, and so similar to what we talked about, about, you know, players and being successful is having the courage to be able to try something and fail and and know that that's still a part of the growing process. Yeah. And just because you fail doesn't mean you're going backwards, right? Uh, so I think for me, if I, if I could have adopted that attitude a little bit earlier, um, it definitely... I think I I would have gotten a lot more out of you know what I feel like I already got a lot out of, uh, so just maximizing that a little bit. For young coaches, you know the best advice I can do is say is is be willing to put in the time and the work. You know, like I shoot, I coached for fifteen years before I really got paid you know, before I got a job that paid me to coach. And I was lucky because I didn't necessarily need that to survive. Yeah, um, I had other things that were happening. It was something that I was kind of doing on the side, but it was something that I put a lot of time into. And I feel like that was necessary. That was my education. You know, it was a 15-year master's degree, yeah. if you can call it that. <laughs> so, you know, putting the time into it, but more simply really is just asking a lot of questions and writing everything down. Uh, and just remembering the things that you do on a daily basis. There's 15 things that I'll learn and I'll forget 12 of them if I don't write them down. Uh, and so those are things that if I, if I could keep those and have them, I've got you know notebooks filled with you know my first seasons at Pomona and all the things that I learned. I thought I knew a lot because I'd coached for eight years at that point, but really I look back now and I didn't know anything about the sport. Yeah. And so all the things that I learned, the things that I was able to do, the organization that took for me to be able to be a part of a part of that uh, and and get the most out of it, um, you know, write a lot of stuff down and say yes to a lot of things. Yeah. Right. And be okay with. I don't think that as coaches, we should ever really be okay with not getting paid or not being compensated for the work that we do. But 
because I think that this is a profession that probably deserves more respect than it's given just yeah. from from a professional standpoint. But at the same time, you know, everything that I've ever been able to do has just been a, a function of saying yes and being available. You know, yeah. can you do this? Yeah, of course. Is it something you're really stoked on? Probably not, but it's going to lead to other things. And whether it's meeting people, making those relationships, making connections and just, uh, you know, networking, if that's what it is. But the more you can be involved in, do it. You know, it's the same as a kid playing 200 games versus a kid playing 50. If you're coaching or around the pool deck watching coaches 10 hours a week versus 50 hours a week, it's going to make a difference. Yeah. And so no matter what it is, and it doesn't matter what level the coaching happens at, in our sport, the crazy thing about our sport is that some of the best coaches in the country are high school coaches, which I don't think you can say about like college basketball, yeah. high, high school basketball, football, all of those things where, you know, you look at the national team history for head coaches, how many of them were high school coaches when they were also the head coach of the national team? Yeah. Uh, and so for me, that's, that's where the ability to learn from a coach in any setting in water polo is probably greater than, than most sports out there. So accessibility yeah. is there. It's not like there's somebody that's going to say no every single time. I mean, young coaches could probably call up Adam Wright, Jovan Vavic, you know, I mean, John Vargas, Kirk Everest, you know, anybody as a big name and say, can I watch one of your practices? They're probably going to say yes. For sure. Likely. Well, and it's funny because it does happen. And the coaches that do that are the ones that it, you would already consider successful, right? Going back, uh, Carlson, Dave Carlson does this all the time. When I was at Cal, he used to come up with his team every summer and, hey, can we come by? Can we watch a practice? Can we be involved with this and that? And and I think he talked about it a little bit. Yeah. Was uh, He's had that conversation with a lot of different coaches and he's – and how receptive they've been to to having having that interaction with yeah. him, and and it's no surprise that he's been able to be successful because of just putting in the time, being passionate about what he what his you know what his job is, and and how he approaches it. Uh, I think it's a it's a huge a huge thing. I mean, we USA Water Polo did like a coaching coaching clinic series for a little while, where they're doing coaches clinics in conjunction with ODP camps at different sites around the country. Mm-hmm. It's not always the easiest thing to get to if the if the site is, you know, a two-hour drive or yeah. like a flight away. But we would have national team coaches there running these coaching clinics, and there would be two people that signed up. And so for me, I think a lot of it is, you know, just taking the time to do it. And, and whether you agree or not, you're going to learn something. Yeah. Because one of the greatest moments for me the epiphany of understanding, oh, I would do that differently. Like the first time I started having those feelings was when I started to realize, okay, I have my own like coaching style, my own philosophies about what it means to be a coach. And that's when I started feeling like, okay, I'm ready to actually go out and do this for myself. Yeah. Uh, rather than just being in that, like taking notes and learning questions mode all the time. It was like, oh, well, I would do that differently. Yeah. I agree with that, but I would do that part differently. And once I started realizing that, that's when I, I realized what defined my 
viewpoints on just, you know, simple things to the way that drills are run, the way that practice is run, the way that you run, you know, even within like a four or five zone or whatever else it is. Different coaches have different ways of emphasizing things. And, and so I think once you start to have those opinions and just knowing what you want has a lot to do with knowing what you don't want. And so I think that you show up to a coaching clinic and you don't like anything that you heard. Well, that's going to teach you a lot about what you want and what you care about, how you want to run your program. And, you know, you may or you may be right, you may be wrong, but one of the most important things that I've learned as a coach is there's not really a whole lot of right and wrong that actually happens in our sport, right? You think about like a conventional defense and then you see Japan play and you're like, "Oh, oh my gosh, they're doing something that doesn't make any sense. It goes against almost all of the like basic fundamental rules that we have about defense. Don't leave, don't leave the wings. Oh, well you're crashing from one to the center and the ball's on the four or five side and it's, okay, why is that happening and how is that working? And it's just about having an idea, sticking to it, and having really clear clear conviction to, to making sure that that works. So I, I think you can coach and play and teach a million different ways. You just have to really believe in, in what it is that you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's really good advice. And um, it's been awesome. I really appreciate you coming over here and and sitting down with with me and and like just like giving your knowledge to everybody out there listening. So, uh, Chris Lee, thank you very much for being here. Well, I appreciate it. I uh, yeah, it's. I thought you were crazy when you called me to to be on this <laughs> thing, but especially coming after coaches like Carlson and Ormsby and and Jack Bowen and you know Jim Brum. These, are, these guys are all legends. So. Well, you're right up there, and I, and I know you've had a huge influence on a lot of the players that you've been able to work with. And I think um, they're going to appreciate this just as much as the coaches will. So, again, I I can't thank you enough. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing this.